Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is our first episode of our podcast, True Crimes Untold. My name's Jess. I'm Brittany. We are um, good friends who both really like true crime, so we decided to start a podcast together. So let's get into our first episode. Uh, It's going to be about John George Hay. He was known as the acid bath murderer. This guy is a real doozy. So John was born July 24th, 1909 in Stamford, Lincolnshire, United Kingdom. His parents were John Robert Hay. He was an engineer, which we'll see later down the line that John Jr. definitely uses that to his advantage a little bit. Um, And his wife's name was Emily Hudson. They were a very religious family. Always a recipe for disaster. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, at least some of the time. Yeah, you know, it can be and it can't be. Uh, but the way that they did it, it was. I they most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> I feel the same way, actually. So they were members of the Plymouth Brethren, which is a conservative Protestant sect. They oh, were so am I. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Don't you go to that church? Yeah, that's where we met. Yeah, that one church. That's how we became friends. Yeah. No. So they were very strict. They did not let John have any friends. They did not let him play with any of the neighbor kids. He just stayed inside. They, the only type of entertainment that they would allow would be Bible studies. I mean, that's no life. That's (laughs) no life for a child. Especially for a child, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you need that social skills to be a functioning adult you learn those things as a child so very sad Uh, but for the most part it said that his parents they they were good parents they were caring parents they took good care of john they just were very very into the church and into the religion but they put it in his head that if he did anything wrong there was always a higher power watching him Uh, you know he he would get in trouble From the higher power. If he sinned, they would see it, God would see it, and he would be punished because of it. So, I mean, once again, as a kid, yeah, I hate when people use religion to just instill fear in people, especially children, you Mm -hmm. know, like, Mm -hmm. they're so, you know, they believe anything you tell them, especially when you're the only influence in their life. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're a mother, like, you know how the damage that that could cause a child to, to think that way. And then on top of that, you're telling him these things and you're not letting him have any type of outside information at all. It's more like raising a robot. It is. It it really is. A human being. Yeah. I mean, the only friends that John had were uh, dogs. The neighbor dog was his best friend. Uh, I know that it's sad. It is sad. I mean, I do get that. <laughs> my dog's my best <laughs> friend. <laughs> Brittany knows. Um, but it's sad though, uh, as a child, not being able to go out and play. Yeah. But the thing that's even crazier is they put up a privacy fence around their whole entire house. 
to keep the evils of the world out. So it's not even like he could you even... Were like, what are you keeping out besides, like, uh, robbers, maybe? I, you're like, yeah, you know? I mean, if anything, that might make them more curious yeah. to know what you're keeping in there, you know? And I mean, really, I'm it's just sure, a couple like, evil spirits could fly over a fence, if I, that's what they're talking. That's, exactly, you know? But it, when you're telling a child that they, yeah. you know, they're, they're terrified, probably. Yeah. Oh, so gosh. My kid has so many anxieties, and I don't even... Put you know, those yeah, in her exactly. Already. Yeah, yeah, just from the world alone. Not- yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, y- you can't, you cannot keep your children locked away yeah. because they like will prison. become curious. They are going to have to leave at some point. So, uh, you, yeah, there's better ways. Them. Exactly. You prepare them for the outside world. You don't totally keep them away from yeah. that. That's, that's going to be, that's, going to be a horrible outcome in the long run. So they, um, like I said, like we said, they made him believe this higher power was always watching and disapproving of him. He was definitely bleak, lonely. Um, his father told him that when he was a child, that God branded him with a blue blemish on his head because he sinned in his youth. So he really instilled this in him. If you sin, God will see you and you will have this blue blemish and then everybody will know that you're a sinner. That is the weirdest. It is. I wonder where somebody even (laughs) comes up with that. You know? Yeah. I've never heard that before. It's probably just a bad bruise. I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. He (laughs) fell or something, blamed it on... The higher power. Yeah, I mean, something. But that's what he came up with, and that's what he told John Jr. And he told him his mother um, did not have the mark because she was a perfect angel. She she was not a sinner. Emily was a good girl. Yeah. So, well, of course, as a child, what do you do? You test this theory. And he, of course, soon realized that it wasn't true. Which then just really sped it up, you know, him wanting to test to, it yeah, more and more. Yeah, I mean, he I mean, started... If that's a lie, then what else is a lie? Exactly, you know? yeah. So he, you know, people started to notice, the people at the church started to notice, he became very manipulative, manipulative. <laughs> I'm sorry. Manipulative? Yes. Um, he was uh, starting to lie um, compulsively. People were getting worried. They noticed a big change in John um and which is once again you know he's so young that is his developing psyche and he's liking this yeah you know this is a form of entertainment for him right here different uh, yeah different sense. than he's his got, bible studies you know, what you else know? does he have in his life yeah to... yeah so that was a big turning point for him he started to believe that he was invincible at a young age, that he could do anything now, and that he was not going to get brand like his father had told him. Uh, he said that he started to become afflicted by dreams, very gothic, nightmarish proportions, trees turning into crucifix that were weeping blood. Just very, yeah, scary things for a child. Just... Just very scary, very dark, you know. He's waking up and remembering these dreams, and then he's going out and doing this questionable behavior, you know. It's like he's following what the dreams are kind of telling him what to do, you know. So, which is sad, because he, John, could have been really great 
Uh, he was very smart. He was a wonderful uh, piano player. He taught himself how to play the piano, which everybody knows how difficult that can be. Uh, piano oh, yeah. is one of the mo- more difficult instruments to learn to play. Um, so he was very into musicals. He actually won a scholarship to Queen Elizabeth Grammar School and then won a second scholarship um, to the Wakefield Cathedral where he became a choir boy. I mean, obviously he was intelligent. Yeah, he was definitely intelligent. Um, didn't have a lot of friends. The kids at school said he, he was a nice kid, but very just wanted to be by himself. Uh, a little bit of a loner, kind of an outcast. That's what uh, he's used to. I mean. Yeah, I mean, that is what he's used to. Like like we said, he he didn't grow up learning social skills. So what else do you do? You probably feel a little awkward trying to talk to other kids now, you know, you're, you're getting a little older and you know, that's whenever you're going to start really seeing that when they're kids, you can keep them at home. (laughs) You know, when they start to get older, you can't anymore. You can't just make them stay at home. So so that that is sad. Um, so, like we said, he became a choir boy. Um, after school, he got an apprenticeship at a firm uh, of motor engineering. So he engineers. So he that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to work on motors, and um, by all accounts, he was very good at it. But he didn't want to get dirty. He did not like <laughs> to get dirty. Which is... I mean, that's like a requirement of the job, I'm sure. It is. I mean, they said he had to be, like, fully gloved, really no skin showing. I dated a mechanic, and he was dirty a lot. Yeah, even after showering, you're still dirty. So, yeah, um, probably not the best job for somebody who doesn't like a little bit of dirt on their hands. So he he did end up leaving that job um after about a year. Um he took jobs in insurance and advertising at age 21. He ended up getting fired after they uh suspected him of stealing money from a cash box. So it's like he's moving to that next level now you know he's starting to steal actual belongings you know from other people it's more than just lies and you know so he's definite progression there is there's a definite progression there so and now he's 21 he he's an adult yeah I mean he knows right from wrong and he is still deciding to to go on this path so as we'll see, he it'll get a lot worse. Um, he ended up meeting and marrying, surprise, surprise, 23-year-old Beatrice Hammer. People called her Betty. It was a very quick marriage. Uh, they hardly knew each other, uh, but they got married anyway. Betty had said that she always felt like there was something there about John. She She just wasn't quite sure. She couldn't put her finger on it, but she was intrigued by him. He was a charmer. He was good looking. Uh, so she went ahead with the marriage anyway. Uh, they did live with John's parents. But then in that same year, 1934, he was jailed for the first time for fraud. So uh, it, it's sad because he probably... He's such a liar. He was probably lying to Betty, which is how, why she went ahead with the marriage, even Mm -hmm. though she could tell that there was something there about him that just wasn't right. Yeah. So, um, 
while he was in jail, Betty decided, you know, the marriage was over. I think it was about four months um, that they were married for. But she was pregnant with a little girl. She ended up giving, um, having birth, but gave the little girl up for adoption, which I'm sure was for the better. Yeah. I, I know mm-hmm. I did see an article somewhere that she she did have a good life. Um, so now, he didn't know that she gave the baby up, did he? I, I don't believe so. I believe that she she did go to the jail one last time. This is after she gave the little girl for adoption, and she wanted the divorce. She went to uh, the jail to see John, and she told him what had happened, and she was filing for divorce. That's whenever he decided to tell her that, well, our wedding, our vows weren't legal because he was already married to somebody else. Yeah. I don't know why, why he told her that. Maybe to hurt her. Maybe so she wouldn't go and file for the divorce. Yeah, if she thinks that they're not legally married, then she's not going to, maybe not going to go and file for divorce. Exactly. Yeah. So, but it it wasn't true. He was not married to somebody else. So they did indeed end up getting divorced. Uh, On top of all of that, um, you know, John's very religious, very conservative uh, family, they were not okay with uh, their <laughs> son sitting in prison for fraud. I'm yeah. sure it was embarrassing, you know, Along to... Along with divorce and, uh, you know, Oh, yeah, adoption. of course, you None know. of those things were really... Like... Everything, because she, they were living with his parents, so... Yeah. She may have been there while she was pregnant, you know. It, it just wasn't something that they wanted for their family um so they were done with him they they wiped their hands clean of him and that was it uh they were not gonna allow him to move back home after his little prison stay so after jail um in 1936 john ended up moving to london that's where he became friends uh with william mcswan McSwan actually hired him to become his chauffeur. He was a wealthy owner of amusement arcades, and High actually maintained the amusement machines for him as well. So he was driving him around. He was taking care of all of the machines that he had for the arcade. Uh, it was. It seemed kind of like a friendly um, employee employer relationship, you know, a little more than just employee employer. They were also friends. Yeah. Um, but for some reason that just, it wasn't enough for John. He decided he needed to have a little bit more on his, on his resume, I guess. (laughs) Uh, so from there he pretended to be a solicitor named William Cato Adamson. Okay. He, Pretended to have offices in Chancery Lane, London, Guildford, Surrey, and Hastings, Sussex. So what he did in those pretend offices was he sold fraudulent stock shares allegedly from the estates of his deceased clients at below market rates. So he would find people, tell these people, hey, you know, this is, I have um, a client that passed away. I have ownership or whatever of their estates of their belongings and I'm selling them off for a very low rate yeah you know come to me it's you'll get these things for a lot cheaper than the next person you know and people were believing him I mean he was good at it yeah I mean he was smart what you're talking about you do you definitely do people aren't gonna just 
go along with somebody who, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I know, he, I'd sound like I, like, I, I would have no idea yeah. where to start. I mean, I would like probably be caught in jail in the first hour <laughs> yeah. because I have no idea where to start, you know, and he obviously did. People believed him. People did buy these stock shares, these estates, these belongings. Um, but soon enough, the scam was uncovered by someone who noticed that he misspelled one of the office buildings, Guilford. He misspelled it on a letterhead. This guy was like, um, okay, what the hell? Like, yeah, this is your business. Yeah. This is where your offices are located. It was very concerning to him. So he questioned it. He went to the police with it. John ended up receiving four-year prison sentence because of it. So, you know... He's he's starting to realize, oh, wow, uh, these people that I'm working with, they're getting me in trouble. I can't leave them alive anymore. How, how can <laughs> I, mean, I continue? Logical. Yes. How can it's I logical. continue hardly working, you know, but make money? But make money. That's, that's what John wanted to do. He didn't want to work to make money. He wanted the easiest possible way to make money, which to me, this seems way harder than just getting yeah, a normal exactly. job. Or just or, getting an education, it, yeah, exactly. which you had a shot at because you had scholarships. Like Exactly. He, he could have really done something with himself, but he took... To me, the harder way out. Yeah. I, I would have rather went to school or got a job. But he wanted that quick. He know? did. He didn't he, want to put the work in. He, he did. That and, quick. and he's a criminal. I mean, he. Yeah. that's not the only reason why. It's because he liked it. He liked doing these things. Yeah. So as he's sitting in jail, he's realizing, what do I need to do? I need to get rid of these people who are turning me into the police. So that's whenever he started to become very intrigued by a French murderer, uh, Jorge Alexandra Serrett. He disposed of his um, of the victims that he murdered in sulfuric acid, which, as we all know, will definitely dissolve things. Everything. <laughs> yeah, anything that you put into it, I'm sure. So... Uh, he, he was obsessed. He was reading about him, seeing how he did it. And that's, that's what he went with. That's how he decided that he was going to commit these murders. So what did John do? He went out, he found some, some, he (laughs) bought some acid. Yeah. (laughs) Found some field mice and he would bring the field mice, put them in the acid. And he said it took about 30 minutes for the mice to dissolve, not disappear, but to to dissolve, John thought if if there was no body to put the crime, you know, then then there was no crime. He couldn't be co- committed. But the thing is, is that the there were body parts still. It just dissolved them. Yeah, there's still evidence. It, there's still evidence, exactly. So, okay, so after he, you know, his four year prison sentence, he he figures out this way that he's going to commit these crimes he's freed from prison he ended up coming out and getting another real job he became an accountant with an engineering firm (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know just another job where he could have been successful at which I believe going back to his dad his dad was an engineer I, I don't know if that helped him in some way 
I mean, I don't think it could help him that much. His dad really didn't have anything to do with him. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm sure his dad couldn't have taught him that much stuff about that industry. You know? You're right. And at 21, they were done with him yeah, anyway. Exactly. You know, so somehow he knew what he was doing enough for these people to be like, okay, we'll hire you here. We'll give you a shot. So they did. Well, then soon after that, j- this is just by chance. He ended up bumping into a former employee, William McSwan, in a Kensington pub. They talked, you know, got a little reacquainted with each other, and then McSwan decided to introduce John to his parents, uh, Donald and Amy. Okay. William worked for his parents uh, collecting rents for their London properties, and John was just very envious of this. He he that this is the lifestyle that he wanted. Yeah, a very easy way to make money. He sees he's just going to these pro- properties, hand me your rent check, cashing the check, and he's getting paid for this. You know, so he he wanted to live this lifestyle. Uh, September 6, 1944, William McSwan disappeared. John t- lured him into a basement, uh, into a workshop that he had rented on... Go ahead, Brittany. You say it for me. Uh, Gloucester. That's how I think it's That's how we pronounced. think it's said. Gloucester I Road. Could be wrong. We could be wrong. Uh, so he lured him into the basement, which I wouldn't even use the word lure because... Yeah, he trusted him. He trusted him. You know, they were friends. So he took him to this workshop basement. As they're there, William at some point turns his back to John and John picks up a lead pipe, hits him in the back of the head and kills him with it. So now he has his first victim to try his little sulfuric acid bath on you know and he does he fills up he puts william's body in a 40 gallon steel drum he fills up the bath with concentrated sulfuric acid um closes up the lid takes off for the night and just waits it out and sees what (laughs) happened well in the meantime he goes to william's parents and tells them that william he, he he left he's gone he he didn't when John got out of prison, the Second World War was just beginning. So he told his parents that William didn't want to get called into the military. So he decided to leave for, for Scotland. Scotland. Yes. But he didn't tell anybody other than John. John was just supposed to pass the message on. Yes, I, I suppose so. You know, William only works for his parents. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure on a monthly type basis since he's collecting rent oh, I'm checks. Sure. I mean, they seem like a pretty close-knit family, um, but he just left no goodbyes, no hugs, no kisses, um, but John knew. Yeah. So he, he came. Was there to, you know, he was here to send him off, send him on his way. Yes, yeah, so he, yes, he, he stuck around to help the mixed swans. Um, he, he took up what uh, William was doing. He was going now to these London properties and collecting the rent for the mixed swans. So they were okay. You know, they, they believed him. They had no really reason not to believe him. They let crazy. It's so crazy. I mean, they didn't know him for very long. I'm thinking, um, a few years or so and, but they let him do it. So after that, um, the war is coming to an end. William 
has not come back home. Nothing. They have not heard from him. Yeah. They don't know where their son is in at, is at. They thought he's been in Scotland this whole time, but now he's not returning home. So they're starting to get a little curious. They're wondering what is going on. Obviously, John sees this, and yeah. that's making him worried. He's He doesn't want any suspicion to land on him. So he decides to tell the mixed ones that William is home. He's at my workshop on Gloucester Road waiting for you for a surprise visit. They're excited to see their son. They're like, oh, yes, great. Let's yeah. let's get in the car. Come yeah. on. Let's head on over there, you know. So they do. They go over. They follow John down to the basement. This oh, is so sad. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. This is July 2nd, 1945. Once they're down there, backs turned. Once again, he hits both of them on the back of the head with this steel pipe and kills both of them. And now he's realizing he, he's returned to William's body. Um, it only took two days. And yeah. he's completely, uh, wow, some some asshole outside <laughs> thinks it's real cool to rev, rev their car engines. in front of my house while we're trying to podcast. <laughs> Um, so it took about two days. He said once he opened that barrel that he, he was, his body was mostly dissolved. So he pours his body into, um, a drain into a manhole that's on the property there. Ends up doing the same exact thing with William's parents. You know, uh, once he has them in the 40 gallon drums, pours in the sulfuric acid, closes them up, takes off. He goes back to, I'm assuming, their main property, um, and that's where John starts just ransacking everything. He steals their pension checks. He's signing their names, you know, just fraudulent acts one after the other. Uh, He sold off all of their properties, uh, and he collected actually about 8,000 pounds for that, which nowadays would be equal to 350,000 pounds. So, yeah. I mean, I don't really know about pounds, but I'm sure that's a lot of money. <laughs> I'm sure it is too, especially in those days. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, so right now he's living large. Yeah. You know, he just murdered three people. It's but crazy that he was able to do all that with their possessions just by easily, himself, you know? Easily, yeah. He he forged their signatures and was able to, but this all comes back to how intelligent this guy yeah. is, you know? I mean, it's just crazy. So from there, now he has some money. He moved into the Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington. By 1947, he was out of money. He's a huge gambler, just spending all of his money in casinos, uh, he was out. So what did he need to do? He needed to find more money. He needed more money. His thought now was that he wanted to find uh, rich, wealthy, widowed, older women. Yeah. But it didn't always happen that way. But that's what he initially was going to go for. Yeah, I mean. Was, yeah, uh, easy. <clears throat> he thought easy that targets, would be easy yeah. targets. Exactly. Um, But the next couple that he finds and befriends are Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife, Rose. He pretended to be interested in a house they were selling. So he he was very nice to them. They became friends. They talked. And they ended up inviting him to their flat to play piano for a housewarming party that they had. While John was there, he 
secretly was going rummaging through their house, finding things that he could stuff his pockets with. <laughs> I know. It's As like, one does. Yeah, exactly. That's what you would usually do when you're invited <laughs> to a party. Um, and he comes across uh, Archibald's uh, revolver that he owned. He decided to steal it so he could use it in his next crime that he was going to commit. That was his mind thought. Here's a gun I'm going to take and I'm going to commit a crime with it. Yeah. So he did. He stole it. Um, in this time, he, he ended up renting a new small workshop at 2 Leopold Road in Crawley, Sussex. He moved all of his items that he had at the other workshop into the new one. His acid baths, his... Um, his lead pipe, probably, <laughs> you know, just yeah. anything that he was using it's in a game of clue. It, it really is. It, it is a game of clue. <laughs> like, where are you going to go next? Archibald in the revolver, uh, you know, so now he's in this new workshop. He's got new, a new friend that he's got his eyes on. February 12th, 1948, he told Archibald he had an uh, invention to show him, and they drove together to their to his workshop. When they arrived, John shot him in the head with his own revolver. Aww. I know. That's so it, fucked up. It is. It, it really is. You know, you buy this gun, you have it yeah, safely protected at your home to protect you, your family, your wife, and then... This ends up being turned against you. It does. It does. It it is really sad. Um, John then lured Miss Henderson, Rose, to the workshop by telling her Archibald fell ill. He was very sick. He needed Rose to come right away. I mean... I'm sure she did. And she did. She definitely did. If somebody called me and said, you know, JR was very sick somewhere, I don't care where I was at, I would get there as quickly as I could, you know? So she did. She rushed there to her husband's side, and when she arrived, he shot her with the revolver as well. He disposed both bodies in the drums with the sulfuric acid, acid, and then he, of course... Went back to their house. He forged letters with their signatures and sold off all of their possessions for which was equiv- equivalent of another 8,000 pounds, which was strange. They must yeah, have. Yeah, yeah, had yeah. About the same amount of wealth. Exactly. Yeah. So um, this, I really didn't like the, the end of this part here. Um, it really bothered me. He sold off everything, but he kept their car and their dog, which really breaks my heart. This dog just lost both owners and now has to be probably waiting for him to come home. And you know, he's a dog. It doesn't realize that has no idea. Yeah. It has no idea. This other guy comes and just takes you. And he is the one that murdered your owners. I know it's, it's so sad. He, he's a real piece of shit. This guy is so, all right, let's move on. So this is going to be his last victim and how he was captured. So his last victim's name was Olive Duran Deacon. She was 69. She was the wealthy widow of a solicitor named John Duran Deacon. And supposedly John was an amazing solicitor. He was very good at his job. He was well-known, well-liked. And they were also fellow residents at the Onslow Court Hotel, which is where John lived yeah. too. So, by this point, John was telling people that that he's an engineer now. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, he had a little bit of uh, an internship type of practice, you know, 
not for long, but now he's a full-blown engineer. Uh, and he tells all of this and she's excited because she actually has an invention that she wants to yeah. let tell somebody about. Her invention is artificial fingernails. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that could have gone really far back it, in that day. I mean, yeah, yeah. Look I mean, at it today. Exactly. It is a huge industry today and I mean, she could have been the she could yeah. have invented that, you know? I mean, that was an idea she had. So um John of course went along with it and yes, yes, let me help you all of come to my workshop. So he invited her there on February 18th, 1949 at 2 Leopold Road. And once she was inside and turned around, he shot her in the back of the neck and killed her. Mm. Uh, he then stripped her of her valuables, one of them being a Persian lamb coat, which, right. yeah, I thought was very interesting. Um And then he put her into an acid bath just like the others. Two days later... Olive's friend, Constance Lane, noticed, hey, where's my friend at? You know, she she couldn't find her. She couldn't get a hold of her. So she did report her missing. I mean, she is a 69-year-old woman. Yeah. You know, and a wealthy widow. She lives in a hotel, other residents. Oh, yeah, for sure. You just kidnapped this woman from her house and now have murdered her, and you don't think somebody's going to notice that I she's mean, missing? I nobody noticed with the other couples. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're right, and that's why he... Kept going. Kept on going, yeah. So detectives right away soon discovered, like, High's John High's record of theft of yeah. fraud, and yeah, who's they, around her that could be a suspect. Exactly, you know he he lived close, so they kind of put two and two together. They found out about the workshop on Leopold Road. They went there to search right away. As soon as they were in the building, they find a dry cleaner's receipt for Olive's coat, the Persian lamb coat. Yeah, and then no. <clears throat> yep, yep, and then. They notice that there's um, filings of paperwork. So they start going through it and it's showing um, signatures from the Hendersons, from the McSwans, uh, just all kinds of paperwork of all these people who are who are missing. missing yeah, yeah, who have been missing. And, you know, these the paperwork is obviously all fraudulent, but showing of their belongings yeah. being sold off their houses, you know, so it's very suspicious. Um, a pathologist, Keith, Keith Simpson, he showed up to do an investigation on the property. See, the new workshop at Leopold Road did not have a drain like the old workshop yeah. does, how he was pouring the remains down a drain. So he decided, John decided without a drain, that he would just pour the remains out of a sulfuric acid bath into the back of the property along some uh, along a hedge line back there. Oh. So that's where he just was pouring the rest of these people out. Um, I actually read an article of a woman who lived next door. She had said her hedges had always done so wonderfully. And then one year, which I'm sure was this year, 1949... <laughs> they started to die. She had no idea why. And And this is why. Exactly. Everything else in there. Yep. From him pouring everything out, it was killing her hedges. So the pathologist, Keith, uh, he ended up revealing that there were, that he found 28 pounds of human body fat, part of a, yeah, part of a human foot, 
human gallstones and part of uh, part of dentures, which was later identified to be all of Duran Deacon's. And they were identified by her dentist in court because there was something very noticeable on her dentures. Yeah. They were different. And as soon as her dentist had saw them, she knew right away that they were olives. High asked Detective Inspector Albert Webb during questioning, tell me frankly, what are the chances of anybody being released from Broadmoor, which is a high security psychiatric hospital? The detective told him, he, I cannot discuss that sort of thing with you. High replied, well, if I told you the truth, you would not believe me. It sounds too fantastic to believe. That gives me chills. Like, he's just... You yeah, know. I mean, if you, I, I don't feel like a normal person would listen to that and be like, yeah, you're telling truth. He totally did all that stuff. Yeah, like, I mean. You know, like, anybody would be like, no way, dude. Even like, seeing that, like, in a horror movie. If yeah. there was a horror movie where people were just doing that, you'd be like, oh, this is just a movie. Yeah. That, you know, a good, <laughs> no a good movie. or this. Yeah, and, and somebody definitely did do it. Well, John ended up confessing to the murders. It, uh, he came right out and said... He he did not even need to really be questioned. He he had no problem with confessing, which really yeah. How could he do? I mean, at that point, they can you have all of these things in your possession that belong to these people. They have found all a substantial amount of remains on the back of a property you're renting, which also belong to these people. So the victims were Olive Duran Deacon, the McSwans, and the Hendersons. Altogether, six people. But John claimed that he had killed three more people. A young man named Max, a girl from Eastbourne, and a woman from Hammersmith. But the police could not find any evidence of the three claims. So... I mean, who knows? He was who a liar, knows? Yeah, uh, yeah. he could have. He could have done it, or he couldn't have. I mean, he he was such a good liar. So, But since they didn't find any evidence of the claims, they just made... The victims were six. six so, yeah. yeah. So, the trial and execution... High's trial was had held at, this is going to be a hard one to say. I wanted to look it up, and I'm sorry that I didn't. Luis Aziz. High pleaded insanity, claiming that he had drunk the blood of his victims, which I guess there wasn't really any proof of that yeah, either. I mean, I, yeah, how would you prove that? I, exactly. So, um, he, he said that he was in a car accident in March 1994, and from that car accident, he ended up having reoccurrences of those dreams that he had as a child. Those gothic, nightmarish, horrifying dreams that he had. Okay. Now, this is a quote directly from him. I saw before me a forest of crucifixes, which gradually turned into trees. At first, there appeared to be dew or rain dripping from the branches. But as I approached, I realized it was blood. The whole forest began to writhe in the trees dark and erect to ooze blood. A man went from each tree catching the blood. When the cup was full, he approached me. Drink, he said, but I was unable to move. That's terrifying. Terrifying, mm-hmm. yeah. I, it's just, it just goes along, I feel like, with what he did. It, yeah. You know, it's oh, just, for sure. Yeah. 
So Attorney General Sir Hartley Shawcross led the prosecution and urged the jury to reject High's defense on insanity because he had acted with malice aforethought. He came up with these things before he committed them. He bought those the sulfuric acid. He bought he got those forty gallon drums. You know? Exactly. He introduced himself to these people. Exactly. You know, he knew exactly what he's doing. He stole Archibald's Archibald's revolver revolver knowing that he wanted to use it in another crime. So even if he is psycho, insane, whatever he may be, he still knew it was premeditated. He knew exactly what he was doing. Sir David Maxwell Fife, he was the defense, called many witnesses to attest to High's mental state. Witness Henry Yellowlist claimed High had a paranoid constitution, adding the absolute callous, cheerful, bland, and almost friendly indifference of the accused to the crimes which he freely admits having committed is unique in my experience. See, John, like we said earlier, he believed, which mistakenly believed that if the bodies of the victims could not be found, a murder conviction would not be possible. But uh, he... Somebody's so smart, that's exactly an idiotic thing to think. Exactly. (laughs) He should have known, even just somebody this smart who came up with all of this stuff that he did, dumping that yeah, dumping just evidence. right on a property line there. Especially on a property you own. Exactly. You know? And not even, it's like not even thinking, oh, the police might come look. Yeah. Anybody could walk past that and look at probably gallstones and say, that's not Something. an animal yeah. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? So for somebody so smart, he he was pretty dumb. So um, let's see here. It only took minutes for the jury to find him guilty, which is crazy. Like, it can take days sometimes to find, you know... Yeah, especially for something like murder. Yeah, yeah. six people. Exactly. Um, But it it took minutes, which I think is just totally awesome. Um, Like, fuck you. Yeah. You know, you are guilty. So, Mr. Justice Travers Humphreys sentenced him to death. August 10th, 1949, when asked if he would like a brandy, his response was, make it a large one, old boy. So I guess they offer you either a drink, a drink or get... a brandy. Yes. Before your execution. Before your execution. Just, okay. if you're on death row, you're allowed to pick your last meal. Oh, yeah, I know that. So I've, I've never it's... heard of a prisoner getting alcohol, but yeah. I mean, this was also the 1940s, Exactly, 50s, so. yeah, yeah, because I'm assuming, like, he's getting ready to get hanged. Like, I know, like... Well, this is basically from movies, but I'm sure it's true. Like, before you go into the um, electric chair or whatever, they would always offer you, you know, a last meal. And I've read things like people get anything. Like, meatloaf, steak, shrimp, lobster. Yeah. Yeah. So, but he wanted a brandy. And that that was the last thing he'd ever said was, make it a large one, old boy. He was then hanged by executioner Albert Pierpoint. The case was huge for post-1945 cases. It got a lot of coverage um, in the newspapers, even though nobody ever questioned his guilt. Everybody knew he was a murdering piece of shit that deserved no better than what he gave. Um, So, yeah, I mean, 
right? Yeah. 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 Do you agree? Yeah, I I think so. So I just thought this was a little weird, this last thing here, Um, because I've never heard of this before, but maybe this is just another thing, maybe in a different country. I I don't know. But the editor of the Daily Mirror, uh, Sylvester Balome, was sentenced to a three-month prison term for contempt of court for describing Hay as a murderer while the trial was still underway. Yeah, that's nuts. I think that's so crazy. That's a really harsh penalty it, for using. I mean, I understand like everybody's innocent until yeah, proven yeah, yeah. guilty. Yes, that's probably has something to do with it, I guess. But he is a murderer. Yeah, exactly. And, He's just you know, him what he is. but yeah, three months. Yeah, so that's a kind of long prison sentence yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to our first episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, If there's anything that we messed up on or you want to tell us anything, yep, if you have an... um, if you know of a true crime that not a lot of people maybe have heard on on other podcasts, please let us know. We'd yeah. like to get some input from you guys out there, too. Any and it, stories of your own. Uh, yeah, yep. Any stories of your own that we could cover and talk about. And if you did like this case, um, there's a really good rated book on it. It's called John George Hay, The Acid Bath Murderer, A Portrait of a Serial Killer and His Victims, and it's by Jonathan Oates. It got really good reviews. So if you like reading and you want to know more, they said, yeah, because it said that he really puts a lot of time research into the book. So, yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.